all, what is the gospel? And so if you're somewhat new, just kind of checking out ECC Off-Island, what we've been talking about the last couple of months is what is the gospel and why does it matter and how does the gospel of Christ impact our daily lives? And so the gospel itself is the good news. That's what the word means. It's the good news. It's the message that God is redeeming his world through the death, the burial, and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. And he's doing it to display his glory to his creation. And so today, as we continue in our series on what is the gospel, as we learn how it is that the gospel is the power that is unleashed in our lives to transform us, we're talking about what does it provide. And so what exactly does the gospel provide for you and me? It's a two-part. We'll start today, and we'll finish it next week. And so today we're talking about the joy of justification. Now, this is a very fundamental teaching, this, this biblical doctrine of justification. Now, the great 16th century leader reformer Martin Luther says this about justification. He says, this is the truth of the gospel. It is also the principal article of all Christian doctrine wherein the knowledge of godliness consisteth, most necessary it is, therefore, that we should know this article well, teach it unto others, and beat it into their head continually. So Martin Luther is saying that I should beat this into your head. So thus saith Martin Luther, not Matthew Levant. That, that is my job, is to, to beat this. Now, why would he say that? Well, in his quote, he says, that it is important for the knowledge of godliness. I believe that Luther had it exactly right when he said that if you want to be godly, if you want to experience a transformed life that displays the glory of God, like we heard from Claire today, if you want to have a life that is truly transformed, justification is the foundation that that life is built upon. If you don't get this, if you don't understand what justification means, then you have no hope of living a godly, a transformed life. You can't. You're on sinking, shifting sand, and you can't build a life of godliness on shifting sand. Now, this is interesting because to me, as a Christian, as a longtime believer, raised in a Christian home, Father was, still is a pastor. My brother's a church planter, like runs family business to be in ministry. And so I was kind of raised in this and kind of like bread, if you will. And it was God called me to be a pastor, but I was just raised in this environment. And growing up in church, and many of you can, can also relate to this, being a Christian is kind of, it's an interesting life because what happens is, is you, you, you go to church, used to be on Sundays, now you go to church on Fridays, and then you, you, you go to your Sunday school, here we call them home groups, and meet in your home throughout the week, and, and so you go to church, and you, you go to your home group, and the offering bag kind of gets passed in front of you, so you, you put some money as offering to God in the offering bag, and, and you really are trying to be obedient to God, and you're trying to to really do what you're supposed to do and read his word and, and you're supposed to pray and, and you're supposed to live a godly life. And, and a lot of times there's this, I'm supposed to, I'm supposed to, I, I have to and I should and I ought to be doing these things. But what can happen at times is it just becomes this mechanical 
just rote system that we're supposed to do these things. And sometimes you're just not feeling it. Maybe it's just me. Because sometimes we have struggles with insecurity. Or other times we can be crippled with fear. Or quite possibly, we feel this pain, this sting of disappointment that inevitably comes our way. Or maybe you labor and you toil and you really are trying to make sense of your life and find some sort of satisfaction. And and sometimes you think, well, if only life were like the Emirates Palace, where it's luxurious and it's beautiful and it's easy, and there's gold machines, you know, they're dispensing gold everywhere, and it's like, that's how life should be, and we heard this morning from Clara saying, you know what, circumstances aren't always great, and that that can happen to us, circumstances sometimes are difficult, and and so then you come to church, and you want to hear a word from the Lord, and then the, 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 the preacher boy is saying, justification, you're like, man, I don't know what that word means. It's like this big word, and I'm not even really sure why you're using such big, confusing words that really have no bearing in my day-to-day life. Well, I can assure you that it does have bearing. And you're going to see this morning from God's word that justification is something that we absolutely must understand. So to make things very practical for you, because I don't know where you are in your journey, in your spiritual journey. I, I, I don't pretend to know that. I also don't pretend to know what struggles you have today. I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know if your heart is light or if it's very heavy right now. But to make things very practical, I have one question for you that I want to ask you. I want you to think about this, and I, I really mean this. If you were face-to-face with Jesus, and I don't mean this in this hyper, super spiritual way, I mean literally, face to face with Jesus. If you were in the room with Jesus, face to face with him physically, bodily, today, now, what would he say to you? What do you think? Now, remember, he knows your heart, so he knows. Now, I don't know what's happening in here with you, but he does. What would Jesus say to you? if you were face-to-face with him. And as you ponder that question, I want us to think about four statements, four truths from God's word about what justification is and why it matters. We'll be in Galatians chapter 2. There are many different passages that describe this teaching from God's word on justification. Galatians 2 is one of the most important ones. And so Galatians 2 Let's begin in verse 15, and let's read through verse 21. Galatians 2, 15. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not works of the law, Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. 
for through the law I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Powerful. And we'll look at these sentence by sentence. Let's begin. I mentioned there are four statements, four truths that will help you understand what justification is. Number one, justification is a legal declaration. So number one, justification is a legal declaration. We read it in verse 15. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Now, the Apostle Paul here is saying we Jews, because he was ethnically, biologically, he was Jew. And he says we're not like the Gentile sinners. Now, Jews outwardly were much more holy than the Gentiles. So who were the Gentiles? Think non-Jews. And so anyone that wasn't Jewish was a, quote, Gentile. And so the Greco-Roman world was considered a Gentile. And so the Jews were religious, and they, they had the Torah, what we would call the Old Testament, or they had the Jewish scriptures. And so because they had God's word, they had the law, and they were honestly trying to keep it. Now, they were trying on their own efforts and their own human abilities, but they were trying to keep God's laws. And so from an external perspective, from a religious vantage point, the Jews looked more holy, more righteous than the Gentiles that didn't have the law. They didn't know the law. They didn't read Hebrew. They read Greek or Latin. It was more formal, but not Hebrew. And so they didn't have it. Now, there was a Greek Septuagint which existed for them to read, but they weren't really reading that. They weren't reading it. They didn't know about God's law. So they lived typical Greco-Roman pagan lives. And so he's saying, from a human standpoint, the Jews were way more holy, way more religious than the Gentiles. But in God's eyes, was there a difference? No. In God's eyes, all of the Jewish religion changed nothing. They were just as evil, just as guilty as the Gentiles. Verse 16, just read it again. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law. So the law was not going to justify the Jews. It says, but through faith in Jesus Christ. And so he says that we have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because the works of the law, no one will be justified. So what he's saying is no one here who is trying to be good will be justified. You're thinking, okay, this word justified is used over and over and over. It's like repeated, like this mantra. What does that word even mean? Well, the word justify was borrowed from the legal system. It was borrowed from the courts. So it was a legal word. And it meant the opposite of condemn. And so condemn meant to, to declare someone to be guilty. And so the judge, with his gavel, he would drop it on his bench and declares guilty or innocent. And so the guilty, to be declared guilty, was to be condemned, to be declared innocent, to be declared righteous, to be exonerated, is to be justified. And so to be justified means to be declared innocent. 
So he's saying here that we have been declared innocent, that we have been justified. But he says, but you can't get that from the law. He's saying here that this justification is an act. It's a legal pronouncement. It's basically the verdict that a judge issues when someone is on trial. So the defendant must be declared condemned or guilty, justified or not. It's not a process. This is very important. There are many people that think of justification as though it's some kind of a process that you then become more acceptable to God. But the word itself is not a process. It's a declaration. It is an act. Now, we are not actually innocent. We have been declared innocent. There's a big difference. We indeed are guilty. We indeed have broken the law. We deserve to be condemned. Yet, we are once and for all declared. We are found innocent while on trial. So again, this is very important as, as moving to the second truth. The first thing you have to understand about justification is it is not a process. It is a one-time declaration, an act made by the judge. Yes, we have broken the law. We are declared innocent. Number two, justification is by faith alone. We just read verse 16. It's very repetitive. I mean, it really is. It's, it's amazing. He says that a person is not justified by works, the first clause, the second phrase, says we have believed that in Christ in order to be justified. And it says again, by faith. So believe and faith are the same word. And he says it twice in the same clause there, in order to be justified by faith in Christ, because no one would be justified by works. It's like he's repeating the same truth three times. Every clause in this sentence is repeating over and over and over. Why do you think God is repeating himself so much in one sentence. Parents, you understand this, right? When you repeat to your kids, why do you do that? Because it's not that important, right? No. When you say, I told you to clean your room, I already told you, I've told you again and again, you're repeating it because it matters. God is repeating himself in this sentence here because he wants us to say, hey, listen, this is important. Pay attention. Don't miss it. I'm going to say it again. Oh, I'm going to say it again. And he's repeating himself because we as humans have a problem. We want self-justification. We see it's so clear that we're justified by Christ, not by our works, not by our religious efforts. And yet, deep down inside, every one of us, because of our pride and our idolatry, we actually want to justify ourselves. Why do you think that God reveals you're not good enough? You can't do this on your own. You can only receive this righteous declaration, this innocent verdict by faith, not by works. Why do you think God would reveal it that way? Because it goes against everything that we would think intuitively. The average person thinks that if they do enough good, then they can become acceptable to God. Every religion on the planet, in some capacity, argues for that. Why would God reveal, no, you're not good enough? You must believe it's about your faith alone. Here's why. Because faith goes against our pride. It shows that we must not depend 
on ourselves. It's the attitude of the heart that is the exact opposite of self-reliance and depending upon God. You see, it's natural to us to depend on ourselves and to want to do that. And so faith is the exact opposite of depending upon yourself and depending upon God. And so we're essentially saying, God, I give up. I, I give up trying to do enough good to somehow become acceptable to you, to be made righteous before you. I, I give up trying on my own, and I will trust in you, Jesus. I will depend on you alone. It's about your complete trust in Jesus. But there are always those that raise objections. In life, there's always a naysayer. Right? Or is it just, no, everyone, every one of us in our lives, there are those who say, no, you're wrong, and that want to argue with you and point out that you're wrong. Well, guess what? Paul also had naysayers. Paul also had those that were objecting to him, and he's teaching about being justified, being made right with God by faith alone, and he had those that were saying, no, Paul, you're wrong. And in verse 17, we read about those that are objecting to this teaching. It says, but if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners. Is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. Now, can I be honest with you? These are difficult sentences to understand. And I'm sure some of you thought, yeah, I don't know what that means. Anyone thought that? Anyone? Just one few of you are being honest. When I first read that, I was like, I don't know what that means. I was like, I'm not, I'm not exactly sure what Paul means. I have to keep reading and read the book from cover to cover and get the overall context and, and, and really try to say, okay, God, what does this mean? It's not easy. And, and we, we can read a verse and say, oh, yeah, and just go to the next page. But no, we need to stop. And say, okay, what do we observe here? And how are we going to interpret this? And how does it apply? So it's very important that we really look at these verses carefully. And they're a little bit tricky but we can work through them together. Basically, what you see here in verses 17 and 18 is those that are in opposition to Paul, those that don't agree with him, those that say, no, Paul, your teaching on justification by faith alone is a very dangerous teaching, and it's not from God. They were arguing that when you say that you are saved by faith alone, not by works, you are giving people a Go and sin freely card. You're basically saying it doesn't really matter. Go live however immorally you want because God will forgive you anyway. And so they were saying to him, if people can be justified by only their faith and you don't have to do anything good to then earn your salvation, then why even bother trying to be good? The whole point of trying to be good is to then earn enough credit to get to heaven. And so, Paul, what you're saying is a problem. You're removing people's moral responsibility is what they were arguing against. So in verse 17, Paul is addressing the naysayers. He is addressing those that are in opposition to the Bible's teaching on being justified by faith alone. Does Jesus approve of his people living immoral lives? Does God approve of people, specifically his redeemed, of living however the heck they want because he'll forgive them anyway? 
Is Jesus, he says here, a servant of sin? Is Jesus enabling us to sin more because we have a sin-free, a get-out-of-jail-free card? Call it justification by faith. Is Jesus the one enabling us, serving sin? And he says emphatically, heck no, certainly not, exclamation point. He's saying, no, no, that is not what justification by faith means. He's saying that you must not blame Jesus for your sin. You and I sin because, honestly, we want to. That's why we sin, because it's in our nature. That's what's natural to us. The Holy Spirit's work is supernatural, but what's natural is for us to go on ahead and sin. And he's saying that Jesus is not the one enabling you. And so the doctrine of being justified by faith does not enable us to live lives with no morals and live however the heck we want. He's saying, no, Jesus is not the servant of your sin. Don't blame God for your freedom. You sin because you want to. And so this teaching of being saved by faith alone does not give you a license to just freely sin. See, the key to understanding what Paul is talking about in verse 17 is in Christ. Those two words are so critical. Those two little words, in Christ, is this whole teaching hinges on. This is very important. It is by your union in Christ that changes everything. So number one, justification is a legal declaration, a one-time pronouncement by the judge. Yes, you've broken the law, but you were declared innocent. It's a legal declaration. Secondly, it's received by faith alone. You can't do enough good to earn it. Number three, justification is an exchange. It's an exchange. When you understand what this means, all the dots begin to connect, and you get a full picture, and we'll see how this changes our lives today. It's an exchange. Verses 19 and 20, he connects everything. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. See, this, this is where he explained to the naysayers why this changes everything. He's saying that justification by faith is talking about a death and a resurrection of Jesus that, by the way, we share. You and I, we share in the death and resurrection of Jesus. He says, I died to the law, he says that, verse 19. So the law's demands, the legal implications of us breaking the law is that we need to be executed. That's what we deserve. So he says, I died to the law. And so Jesus' death on the cross has satisfied the law's demands of death. And he says that I might live to God. And so we have this new spiritual life. Our heart has been radically transformed. I have been crucified with Christ, he then says. And so your former self has, in one very real sense, spiritually has died. It has been crucified with Jesus. And so our old selfish motivations crucified. Our old immoral desires nailed to the cross. Our selfish ambitions 
or arrogant desires. All of these evil parts of who we used to be have been nailed to the cross, and so they are dead. Your old self has been killed. It's no longer who you are. You are made new. You have the new nature. You have the Holy Spirit. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me, he then says. You have the spirit of Jesus living literally in you. And so there are people that say that they're Christians, but their lives look nothing godly at all. Their lives don't reflect the beauty and glory of God. Those people see more glory in their sin than in the cross. That's not a believer in Jesus. A true believer in Jesus is the Holy Spirit, Jesus living in you. It's so it's a want to, not have to. You have been spiritually joined with Jesus through his spirit, and so now our hearts so changed that we don't want to keep sinning. We hate our sin. And so this exchange is very important to understand. When Jesus was hanging on the cross, God took your sin, and he transferred it to Jesus. And he died on the cross in your place. And then God took the righteousness, the goodness, the holiness of Jesus, and he transferred it to you. This is the great exchange. Jesus was condemned so that you can be justified. Jesus was was declared guilty so that you and I could be declared innocent. And so God maintained his holiness while displaying his love for us. And so this amazing exchange of his goodness transferred to you, and your evil and mine transferred to him, and he died on the cross, and he paid the price. And so now we live by faith, Paul says, and we stand justified with an advocate in this courtroom, and we will not be declared guilty. And so we have to believe, trust, we have to have faith that God will keep his word. But you know what happens to you and me? We don't believe it. Too often, we just don't believe God. We, we don't. You know what happens to us? We think that faith is not enough. We think it's just not enough. There has to be more. I have to do my part. And so that self-reliance comes back into the equation. And we think, surely God wants me to do something to keep earning my salvation. And you have to do more. And it's a never-ending thing. You see, this is very important. Here's what we tend to think. We tend to think that the cross saves us from our past sins. So all the evil did before I received Jesus, Jesus died on the cross, and I repent, I believe, and I'm saved. But once I receive Jesus, now it's up to me to pick up from there, clean myself up, and keep earning my salvation. Yes, the cross, the cross saved me, but now it's up to me to continue cleaning myself up to make myself more acceptable to God. That is devastating to your soul. That mindset that the cross saves you, and you pick it up from there, and you keep earning it because you do enough reading the Bible and sharing the gospel, and enough going to home, enough going to church, enough giving in the offering bag. I have to keep doing it. I have to keep doing it. I have to keep doing it. And it will cause despair. You see, idolatry and pride in our heart lead us to self-reliance and leads us away from the Savior. 
it's very important that we understand this. This is critical. The gospel frees you from running around ragged, trying and attempting enough holiness to somehow impress God or to earn his favor. The gospel is not about that at all. Listen, God is not measuring your performance. This is really important. God is not measuring your performance. All he asks is that you trust him. He's not measuring your performance. You see, the way the gospel works is that God motivates us because of acceptance, not toward acceptance. This is a huge difference. Many Christians confuse that. They think, they think that God motivates us to do good so that we can then approach him. And we think that God motivates us toward being accepted by him, but it's quite the opposite. You already are accepted by him, and he motivates you because of, he motivates you from acceptance. And it's not that different from my little girl who has drawn so many masterpieces for me. When she was two and three and four, and even now at six, she loves to draw artwork for me. She'll give me a little picture. Now, when she was two and three, and she would say, here, Daddy, and I would look at this, and I don't know what it was. I was like, it was just crayon that was just scribbled on the paper. It was indiscernible. When my little girl, when a father receives the work, that his little girl gave to him, you think he says, ugh, this isn't a Picasso. This is terrible work. This is awful. Go back to your room and draw me a good one, and then come back and I'll see if I'll accept it. What father would do that to his little girl? I mean, it's not even logical to us to think that way. You see, I accept the work that she's done for me because I accept her. I already accept her. I already love her. I delight in her. I just love spending time with her. She's my little girl. I adore her. The quality of the work doesn't matter. The quality of the work makes no difference in the relationship. I'm just delighted to have her. I don't love her less because the quality is poor. And I would not love her more if the quality of her work was higher. I'm already secure, and she can be secure that my daddy accepts me. And so because of that acceptance, she's motivated to draw me more and more and more, and I got a stack of artwork now in the file because I would fill up the wall if I tried hanging all of them up. Why does she feel so secure to keep on drawing, keep on working, and keep giving me more of her artwork, more of her accomplishments? Why? Because she knew that her daddy accepted her. She knew that daddy was going to say, hey, come here, I love you, thank you, great job. Because of the acceptance, she was motivated to keep working. Yet when she grows older, the quality is going to improve, but the motivation remains the same. The motivation doesn't change at all. God motivates us to grow and develop and mature because of acceptance, not to move us toward being accepted. You are the little 
boy that God delights in. You are his little girl. He sees you, and he just delights in you. He loves you. And he's not measuring his love for you based upon the quality of the work that you're turning into him. You belong to him. He loves you. You see, God's approval is the only thing that you need. God's approval and his presence is all you need for lasting joy. That's it. His approval and his presence is what you need for joy. Everything else will fade away, will betray you, will break, will be lost. But his approval and his presence, he will never lose, will never break, will never betray you. You will have it. And so here's the way this works. is God's approval is the power that liberates us from sin. His approval is the power that liberates us from our sin. It is not the reward for having liberated yourself. Huge difference. God does not accept you because you have liberated yourself. He has liberated you. And because you are free and you are accepted and you have his approval and he already loves you, that motivates us to want to improve and grow more. So it's very dangerous to define my identity in my progress. Don't do it. You must not define who you are in light of how good you're doing because guess what's around the corner? A big truck that's going to run you over. I'm telling you, the day will come when you're going to get hit. I was in Dubai just two days ago. Bonnie's sister and her husband are, are visiting us from Texas, and she loved having them here. Went to Dubai and showing them around. And we were at a stoplight on, just next to Palm Jumeirah. And I heard this, <laughs> big old accident. One car behind me. And I was at a red light. And I couldn't move, but thankfully the car behind me and the other one, you know, like a pile up, but our, we were fine. The honking to move, so I got out of there. And, and so the, the reality is this. You can't foresee that screeching and the accident that's coming around the corner. But in life, it's going to happen. And it's going to affect your spiritual progress. You're going to have ups and downs. That's just the reality of life. And so if you're measuring your identity and your worth based upon your progress, you're going to despair. Don't do it. You measure your identity in the fact that God loves you and he's given you this gift called justification that you did not earn, that you could never earn, that you don't deserve, that Jesus bought for you and freely gives to you. And Jesus says, you're my little boy, you're my little girl, I love you, I accept you. And it's not based upon your progress. Because let me, let me define spiritual progress for you anyway. Just, just so we have a good understanding when I say progress. You know what it is? It's growth in the awareness of the depths of sin that God has freed me from. The more I grow, the more aware I am of my sin. And so spiritual progress is growth in the awareness of the depths of sin that I have been saved from. And so the more you grow, guess what happens? The more you're aware of your sin. The more you're like, oh, I hate my sin. And the more I just 
I don't want it anymore. And the closer I get to Jesus. And so being aware of your sin is not evil in and of itself. It's what, what do you do with it? Now, we'll talk next week in part two of what the gospel provides. One, today, justification. Two, next week, the strength for sanctification. We'll talk next week on gospel-driven effort. Holy Spirit-powered, gospel-driven effort is how we change. This is called sanctification. Now, that is a process. Today, justification is not a process. It is a one-time declaration. You are innocent. You are my child. I love you. You are free. You belong to me. Not a process. Next week, we'll talk about the process of being sanctified, of growing more, and how we become more holy. We'll talk about that next week. The great transfer. Our sin to Jesus, his righteousness to you. Number four, justification as we close. This is the last one, I promise. Almost done. Number four, fourth truth. Justification is a display of God's love for you. Justification is a display of God's love for you. Second half of verse 20. He says, And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith, faith alone, by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God for righteousness, if, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died to no purpose. The cross proves that God loves you. He really loves you. 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 He loves you. He likes you. He enjoys you. He delights in you. This is something that many of us don't believe and don't want to internalize and say, no, God, I'm so messed up. How could you possibly love me? Look to the cross. You look to the cross and you will see that God loves you. His approval, his presence is all that you need for joy. Do you worry a lot? Does fear have a hold of you? Are, are you gripped by insecurity or by despair? Worry and fear and insecurity will all begin to fade away when you realize that God has an unfailing, eternal love for you. And nothing, listen, nothing can separate you from God's love and the plan that he has for you. Jesus has secured this never-ending forgiveness for his people. So we have every reason to hope in failure. We have every reason to hope in failure because we all fail. But we have hope in our failures because we have been justified by our faith alone. You know, I love going to Fun City or Sparky, you know, these different little areas in the mall where the kids go play, and, and they just have a great time. And if you've been to one of these little mini theme parks, arcades in the mall, you've seen the Whack-A-Mole. Anyone seen the Whack-A-Mole? You know what that is? If you're like, I don't know what that is, what it is is, is first you're holding a hammer, all right? It's a really cool little hammer. And then there's these little vermin, these little rodents pop their heads up. And you have to take your hammer, and you need, to, you need to cross the head of these little rodents. You hit them. And the more you hit, the more tickets you get to go buy junk, you know? Um, whatever. So, but the kids love it. So it's, it's a good time. 
and it's not too expensive. You can blow an hour, wives go shopping, the kids will go to a fun state, and everyone's happy. Um, and so when you are thinking about life, think that you're in Fun City playing whack-a-mole. That's what you're doing with life. Think of the hammer as the gospel. The hammer is the gospel. And when that little rodent, that little enemy of fear pops up, you grab that gospel hammer and you crush its head. And then another little enemy, this ugly little vermin of fear, shows its head and you grab the gospel and you, you devastate that one. And then what else pops up? Insecurity pops up out of nowhere. It's like, oh, there's another one. You grab the gospel and you crush its head. It's going to keep popping up. We're in a fallen world. But the more the enemy pops up, the more you fight with the gospel and you crush the head of that little rodent with the power of the gospel that God has given to you. That's what you do. You fight fear and insecurity and doubt and all of, all of these things that come from Satan. You fight him with the gospel. Because you have the power in your hand. Don't put the hammer down. Pick it up. Preach the gospel to yourself. Remind yourself daily as you're reading his word and as you're praying that you have been justified. God loves you. You think, but what about all of my past sins? Everything that I've done, forgiven. What about my current struggles? Paid for. What about my future sins? Covered. Paid for. It's forgiven. Covered. Jesus did it all. It is finished. He cried out from the cross. We have hope in failure. You're his little boy. You're his little girl. He loves you. If you're face to face with Jesus, today. I'm talking really eye to eye, face to face. What would Jesus say to you? He would embrace you and say, I love you. He would say, I love you. He would hold you tight. He would pat your back. And he would say, I love you. That's what Jesus would say to you, if you were here today and was face-to-face with you. Justification changes everything. It is a foundation for our faith, where if you miss this, then you have no hope of transformation. Despair will set in. You have assurance. If you have repented of your sins, you have believed in Jesus, then you have assurance. It's guaranteed that you will not be lost. You will spend eternity with Jesus in heaven. You need not doubt that if you've repented and believed in Jesus. Don't measure your life by your performance. Measure it by the cross and his ability to keep his word. Now, if you're here today, maybe you've never repented. Maybe you've never believed in the gospel. You can do so today. And God will embrace you into his family, and you'll be his child. You will have forgiveness, and you will be justified. 
if you will repent, turn away from your sins, and turn to God in complete faith. And today we have the privilege of partaking of the Lord's table of communion, which is a powerful picture of this. And I'm going to actually call at this moment our men to serve the elements and our worship team to come to the front. And as they're taking their places and as we prepare our hearts for communion, I'll just remind you that Jesus sacrificed himself because there was no other way. No other way for us to be forgiven. And so communion is only for believers, those that have repented and have believed with all of their hearts. Communion is for you. It's a visible reminder. It's a picture of the gospel itself, that Jesus died, was resurrected, and is alive today, and he's going to come back for us. It's also time to reflect and to think on how we've been defining ourselves and our identity and and how we're pursuing Jesus. It's an opportunity to really evaluate time of confession and reflection. And so first, I'm actually going to ask Ekram if you could come up to the front and pray for the bread. Heavenly Father, we thank you for, for the bread that was broken um, in remembrance for us, Lord. We thank you for your invitation to come and sup with you, Lord. We thank you that um, you've done this for us, Lord. We thank you for everything that you have given to us, Lord. Um, and we just bless you for that, Lord. Amen. Every 